0: Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Skip.
1: I'm Zach, and today we are thrilled to have Dr. Robert Pearl with us. Dr. Pearl is the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest medical group, and former president of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group. In 2017, he authored Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare, and Why We're Usually Wrong, a Washington Post bestseller that offers a roadmap for transforming American healthcare with the proceeds of the book going to Doctors Without Borders. Dr. Pearl serves as a clinical professor of surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine and is on the
0: faculty of the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Pearl. My pleasure. So to get started, we always like to ask our guests uh, about this concept of inflection points or points where they felt they needed a pivot or shift in their personal or professional life. Uh, We're wondering if you could share one inflection point
2: with us. I would say there are two because I'm actually now starting my third career. I had a career as a surgeon. I fixed children with birth defects, cleft lips and cleft palates, did a lot of surgery in various countries around the world, I taught at the medical school, uh, led the residency. Then I pivoted to become the CEO of In Kaiser Permanente, responsible for the health care of over 5 million people and responsible for 10,000 physicians and 40,000 staff. And now I'm pivoting a third time, uh, writing the book. I write a Forbes blog, I have my own podcast, uh, Fixing Healthcare, if anyone wants to listen to that. And um, I'm working on my next book, so this is now my opportunity to have gone really from influencing several thousand people as a surgeon to several million as a healthcare CEO to now hopefully hundreds of million trying to change American healthcare and make it the best in the world once again.
1: And what, was, what when you were making those jumps between careers, where you what were you thinking? Like, was it a matter like it seems like you're growing in the magnitude of impact for sure? Is that the primary motivation for you, or is there something else that's kind of driving you to make those career
2: shifts? One of the things a mentor said to me was, when windows open, you better be prepared to jump through them, because if not, by the time you're ready, they will have closed. Mm. And I would say interesting jobs came along, interesting opportunities, and becoming CEO of the nation's largest medical group in Kaiser Permanente, or the opportunity to be a Washington Post bestseller. These are once-in-a-lifetime opportunities except that there are always a lot of them. And so I'd say it was the new challenge. The time had come for change. I had trained people to follow me. I had hired surgeons who could operate similar to me. I had trained people to become the next generation of CEOs. And now the chance to do something very, very different uh, and something that hopefully will have even more impact than the roles I've already done.
0: So just getting into obviously, you started as a doctor, working as a surgeon, getting your medical degree, everything like that. But then you, sw- you switch the corporate side, as you mentioned. Can you just... Detail for us a little bit why why you led what led you to that uh, that shift and why why you were so drawn into that that uh, organi- organizing side.
2: So it's really much more of a gradual process. It doesn't happen. You don't go from being a surgeon to being the CEO of a really one of the nation's largest organizations, not just healthcare organizations. Uh, you start taking on jobs. So my first year being at Kaiser Permanente, they were looking for someone to become the head of the operating room committee. They asked me to do it. At the time, I was very, very uh, honored. They thought they had chosen me because of my great skill. I think in retrospect, (laughs) there was no one else who would do it, and I was the last person they uh, could have thought of, but I enjoyed doing that. And once you're successful in a leadership role, people will come back to you again and again, asking you to take on more accountability. So soon I became the second in command at what's called the Santa Clara Medical Center, which takes care of about 300,000 people, about one in 1,000 Americans. And then from there, I took on a bigger job, got on the board, and from there, ultimately took on the job of CEO. But even that leap was one that I didn't, it wasn't that I really wanted to do it. I was very happy in the role that I was in. But when the opportunity came up and the organization was in big trouble back then, we, were, we only had two days of cash on hand. You need three days as a healthcare organization in the state of California to stay regulated and to meet all the requirements and we had to borrow a day of cash, and someone had to step into that role, and when they thought about me and asked me to take it, it's almost a mission. You, you, you feel like it's something you have to do. You, you owe it to people. And I said, okay, I'll leap through that window and take that chance.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and now you're at, back at Stanford. Well, yeah, you're at Stanford, and you're teaching um, at the medical school and the business school. Um, can you talk about the intersection between those two um, points? Like, uh, is there? Are you teaching classes of the same students, um, like from both schools at the same time, or is it kind of an um, interdisciplinary kind of deal, or wh- how does that work?
2: So I have two appointments, so they're separate appointments. I'm okay. a professor of surgery, uh, where I teach courses on reconstructive plastic surgery, okay. and I'm also a professor in the business school, where I teach courses in strategy. Interestingly enough, though, quite a number of students in my business school class are medical students who want to get the business experience. And I'm frequently asked in the medical school to come speak about the material in, as you say, my book, Mistreated, the Affordable Care Act, the future of medicine, the role of technology. These are areas that they're very interested in. So I think there's significant overlap, but it's actually two separate accountabilities.
0: So we've talked a lot about your personal life. We'd love to transition now to kind of your professional work and, and things things along, that, along those lines. So one one kind of hot-button issue today is vaccinations and the anti-vaccination movement. Um, in your mind, what are the measures that healthcare professionals and organizations ought to be pursuing in order to fight back against this, um, and what measures have they already pursued?
2: Well, it's, an, it's a fascinating story because the publications that led to some of the resistance were total fraud. They were made up, in fact, of all of the articles published in all the journals I've ever seen. This is the only one where the journal actually retracted the article because the information from the researcher was so flawed. I think it's a question of education and miseducation. The question you have to ask yourself is why would people become miseducated? These are often very smart people. And the answer I think is the fear. Something happens with their child, they need an explanation. And the vaccine seems as good an answer. When I speak tonight to the students, I'll be talking about how context shapes perception and changes behavior. We like to think, particularly in a university like the Claremont schools, that it's intellectual function that drives our behavior, that makes us act the way we do. But the data says no, it's the context and the perception. So in the context of having a child with a problem, in the perception is it must have come from something. The child was vaccinated And therefore, the link is associated between the two, even though scientifically, there's no basis for it, and actually quite a lot of problems, because we're seeing diseases that should have been eradicated a long time ago, and since the vaccines are never 100% protective, the people not getting vaccinated are putting all of us at risk.
1: Yeah, and so the kind of idea that you have a context, and then the person's perception of that context it sort of implies or the point you seem to be making is that there is misperception that occurs is there are there other instances or places in the healthcare industry where this causes significant problems aside from vaccinations
2: well oh, absolutely number 1 if you look at the outcomes of america of healthcare across the 11 most industrialized nations mm-hmm. the united states le- leads in one area and one area only cost mm-hmm. everything else we're in the lower half we're last in life expectancy We're last in childhood mortality. And now you ask yourself, what do people think of the American healthcare system? 76% of Americans say it's the best in the world. Mm. There's a complete dissociation. And as long as people believe it's the best in the world, they're not going to demand the kind of change. I mean, think about yourself. Would you go to a travel agent to pick up a ticket on Wednesday afternoon? Or would you insist that it be available online? If you want your records for your doctor, guess what? Most of the time, you've got to go to the doctor's office and pick it up. Would you use a bank that didn't have an ATM? Or didn't let you bank online? And yet how many of the physicians who take care of you offer you the kinds of areas that you insist in your life, you couldn't live without, except in how you get your medical care. And so yes, I think it's that false perception in the context of medicine, the context of fear. I did a lot of research for this book on how our brains work And in times of great reward or great fear, we have a shift, our perception changes, and we're not able to see the facts, and I think healthcare is the classic example of that. We become very excited about some new drug for cancer that maybe, maybe extends life by a couple of weeks, and we miss the fact that we could prevent half of the colon cancer deaths in the United States today with proper screening, and yet... We only do it about 60% of the time. We look at the opportunities for a very highly invasive solution to strokes. We miss the fact that the number one cause, 40% of strokes are from hypertension. Across the United States today, we control high blood pressure 55% of the time. Mm-hmm. We could do it 90. Yeah. So we miss the big things. We embrace the small things. We like the glitter. We miss the parts that we could actually accomplish and change health Context shapes perception and changes behavior.
1: Yeah. So, with with this sort of preventative medicine that you're talking about, um, a lot of it it seems a little bit harder from a policy side to incur or to legislate or encourage or engineer that sort of sort of uh, preventative um, steps early on, right? You could, I as far as I know, you could prevent a lot of you know cardiac disease things like that by lifestyle changes that would be implemented when people are much younger. Um, is that an accurate perception of the problem? And if so, um, what kind of steps do you think the U.S. or other countries could take to kind of get have more preventative medicine than um, uh, treatment
2: after the fact? So a couple of things. One of the things that I'll be speaking about tonight is the pernicious impact of fee-for-service. It rewards volume, not outcome. It pays you a lot more to take care of a heart attack than to prevent it in the first place. So restructuring American healthcare in that particular way. Mm-hmm. But as you were posing the question, I'll give you a random thought. It just popped up as you were interviewing me. What would happen if you had to pay a lot more for bad health care? If the cost of you getting health care from a physician or group of physicians that didn't do precept- prevention we're gonna, was going to cost you an extra $100 a week or a month, And you had to now pay out of pocket for what I'll call, in quotes, bad health care. It might actually change your behavior. Maybe it was free if you got care from physicians who did a really good job of focusing on prevention and improving outcomes. And it was actually expensive. If you want to choose bad doctors, you can do it. But why should society have to pay the price for all the diseases that you're going to develop over time? Not right now while you're in college, but in your adult life, because right now you're setting the stage for that and we could make a difference if we could intervene now. Just a thought, that's how you use economics. Remember, I'm a professor in the business school, how you use incentives to drive behavior.
0: So you've said about your book, Mistreated, you've said you focused on greedy doctors, insurance executives, and drug companies. But increasingly, you said, I see the fundamental problem is the culture of medicinal practice.
2: What do you mean by that? The fundamental problem is what we've been discussing. We don't understand, number one, how problematic the system is. And number two, we don't understand where the biggest opportunities are. And as I said, a lot of the research that I did for the book looked at how context shapes perception. And when you're in a world that pays you twice if you have a complication, you're not going to worry about avoiding it as much as if you're in a system that it, I'll use the phrase capitation, that prepays you, where actually the biggest problem is if your patients get sick so now you have the tremendous incentive to keep them healthy. And I talk about four pillars. Integrating care. So doctors work together as one. We all think our doctors do, but for the most part they're all in our own offices separate. How we pay them, paying them in advance, paying them more to prevent disease than simply to intervene. The technology, the technology in medicines left over from the last century. Electronic health records are so primitive compared to what's available today. Video. We could do 40%, 30, 40% of what we do in doctors' offices. Only 1% of physicians offer it. Artificial intelligence. We have so many things that we could do, and we simply don't do it. That's the opportunity that I was speaking about when I say it's it's, le- it's less about what we thought it was in the past, and it's more about the need for change going forward into the future. So I'm, I'm one other thing I'm interested in is
0: uh, – is big pharma, and, uh, and and the flack kind of big pharma has gotten over the past couple of years, uh, rightfully so, with Martin uh, Shkreli, Turing Pharmaceuticals, um, kind of jacking up the prices of important prescription uh, uh, drugs, and uh, you identified in a recent uh, Forbes column, you, you identified one individual who said he had a moral requirement to make money to sell the product for the highest price, and he said that uh, in explaining why he raised the price of an antibiotic by more than um, 400%. Um, What's, what are some ways that we can kind of curb this activity and um, why haven't we done it yet?
2: We haven't done it because the pharmaceutical world are the biggest contributors to elected officials. And rather than actually ha- insisting that the drug companies be responsible, they've made them, I'll say, have more control of the market so they have, with impunity, the ability to raise prices as you describe. Uh, As an example, the United States is one of only like three nations in the world, and two of them are the 200th wealthiest countries. So I'm talking about any countries in Asia, Europe, or even South America that's prohibited by law from negotiating drug prices. The federal government buys the majority of the drugs through Medicare, through Medicaid, and they can't negotiate price on behalf of the American people. You know, patents are fascinating. Patents are designed for the greater good. But what the pharmaceutical world has figured out recently is that they actually can be used simply to get market consolidation. We never would allow the kind of monopolistic control that they have today in an industry that is essential. If you have a child who has a disease, You've got to buy that medicine. You have no choice. The medicine you were talking about has been around for over half a century. They made, they invested no more dollars. So I think one of two things. I think Congress is going to have to step up, led by a president, and it's going to have to step up in one of two ways. It's either going to have to ensure that drug companies tie their prices to the invested R&D. I have no problem if they want to spend a lot of money doing research, that they should be rewarded because that's a high-risk venture. Or- they have to have the prices associated with the clinical outcomes. And when a drug is not much better than the alternative, it can't be priced four, five, ten times higher, which is what exists today.
1: You know, all of this uh, talk um, about healthcare, it's all, to a lot of people it's really complicated. They don't, you know, there's a lot of technical terms, there's a lot of problems as you pointed out, there's a lot of possible solutions. Um, when you talk to like lay people or to us, how do you simplify that? How do you break it down? Um, and and make sure that you're – or, like, what's a point that you really want to get across
2: to to people you talk to? It is complicated. Remember, doctors spend 10 years training in it. Yeah. It's 18% already going to 20% of the gross domestic product, so that's very expensive. Yeah. And I want to emphasize this again. This is where the context comes into play. People are afraid. When you get sick, your father gets sick, your mother gets sick, your child gets sick, you worry a lot. That's a very major event, so we can't minimize the impact that it has. I think I try to translate the issues into things that people can understand. We were speaking a couple minutes ago about prepayment versus uh, fee-for-service. If you're gonna remodel a kitchen, would you bring in someone and say, I'll pay you, whatever you you put in is okay, I'll pay you 20% of the money as profit. You never would do that because you know what's going to happen. They're going to put the most expensive cabinets in. They're going to have to put three refrigerators in. They're not going to give you what you really want. They're going to give you the thing that going to generate. Not because they're bad people, because that's just what incentives do. Uh, the issue of integration and fragmentation. Why would you not want all the doctors taking care of you to be working together as a single team rather than being all separated in individual offices? Why don't you want... Like, why don't you insist that your medical information be available at every point of contact to every doctor you see? And my best guess is yours yours is not. Unless you're in an integrated healthcare delivery system like a Kaiser Permanente, it's just not. You never would again tolerate this anywhere else in your life. So it's translating the or technology, you know, as I was saying before. You know, right now you go on to book an airline, you go or hotel. You want to go online and be able to do it. You want to do price comparison. Try to do that in medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There are a few websites and applications you can do it on, where you can find an office. But if you want to do it with your doctor, my best guess is you can't do it with your doctor. And if you want to know what it's going to cost to go into the hospital and have uh, your appendix taken out, good luck. You're never going to figure it out until you get the bill for every Band-Aid, for every dressing change. You know, whether it's Thursday afternoon or Saturday morning, everything is totally obscured. There is no transparency. Once you start to see those things, because those you can see, you say, why do we put up with this? The time has come to change.
1: Well, it's it's been a good conversation, but we do have to wrap up. And and as a podcast that's focused on college students, um, we always like to ask the question, what is your personal definition of success? And what advice would you give to students
2: or anyone? who want to pursue that definition. So for me personally, success is being able to change the world in positive ways. I teach leadership. I was actually at Jay Congress class today speaking to them about it. And I talk about my definition of leaders, make things happen that otherwise would not. And they make hopefully good things happen that otherwise it would. To me, that's what motivates me. I felt really great as a surgeon. I'd see the look on the mom's face, the dad's face, the child had a cleft lip and now it's repaired and the joy was magnificent. I saw the opportunity to drive quality in Kaiser Permanente. There's a recent article published on how the mortality from heart disease and from colon cancer is 30% below the rest of the country. And I feel a lot of pride in having accomplished that and that's what I would say, that everyone has to define their own passion. And I want to use that word. It's, it's often bandied about, but I think it's a very important word. Because if there's nothing that's important to you in this world, you're going to have a pretty boring life. So figure out what it is that's important to you, whatever it may be, and then really pursue it in a with a, with a vigor, with a commitment. And my best guess is, if you do it with that much commitment, you'll be successful. And once you're successful, you'll feel good about it. And you'll never wish that you had gone back and avoided taking on those challenges and making the world simply a better place for people.
0: Wonderful. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for Dr. Pearl for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry.